say that we, we, were, we were convinced that we were the only people in the world who knew him. And his obscurity was so deep that when we played his tracks live at our shows, we just said we wrote them. We <laughs> <laughs> didn't credit him. Right. And I was actually able to tell him that. I saw him at a show in 2005, probably his last tour, honestly. And I took him aside and I said, you were so influential on me. Your songwriting is so profound. And we were certain that we alone understood the vision of the, the Beatles collaborative record label. And, and, and you were the vessel by which we felt intimate with that. And, and, and by the way, we told everyone we wrote your songs. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, Dan Moyle. Welcome to the Storytellers Network podcast. I'm your host, Dan Moyle, and I'm just sitting here in the glow after the interview that I just did with, with this guest. And, and I am just, I'm so excited to bring you this conversation. Uh, real quick before we do, just a reminder that the website is where everything is. Great resources to help you tell your story, past interviews to listen to other guests, uh, contact information there for me if you want, the storytellersnetwork.com. So look, today's guest is, is a musician whose music is hyper-personal and by turns quirky and unexpectedly profound. It has been a soundtrack for me over the years. Uh, on stage, he delivers much more than just a song. He plays and moves in a can't-take-your-eyes-off-him style that reminds you why you're leaving the house for live music, which is so critical today. Uh, I first heard of Willie Wisely back when I discovered James Gunn's Tromeo and Juliet. Uh, Willie was the film score composer, and I dove into his music from there. Had a few conversations on social media, this kind of thing, and even tried to help get him to my hometown for a living room concert. If you don't know what that is, look it up. They're amazing. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work at that time, but I have kept in touch with him and followed his career. Uh, Willie's albums, Parador and She, have been staples for me over the years, and I'm so stoked to bring you Willie Wisely on today's episode. So let's get to those stories. So Willie, welcome to the show. Uh, Mr. Wisely, is all right if I call you Willie? <laughs> yes. Welcome to the show, man. Appreciate you taking time to be on the Storytellers Network. Thank you, Mr. Moyle. Uh, so, Willie, do you consider yourself a storyteller? Honestly, um, no. No, uh, really? Uh, the, uh, I, I feel like um, uh, occasionally a song of mine will be a story, um, but I, I guess I've just never given maybe credit to the idea that a story doesn't necessarily need a plot. It can just have a feeling. I think it can. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's, it's funny. I don't know if it's funny, but it's interesting to me at least over the last, I don't know, 80 or so interviews that I've had. Um, this is the first season where I'm talking to what I consider entertainment storytellers and my first opportunity to talk to possibly musicians. So as a songwriter, I was really excited to have you on. And as a fan of yours, I'm, I was excited, but, but I've often thought that music is story and music adds to stories. So like to, in my mind, you're a storyteller. So I was really excited for this. Um, but, but let's, uh, I want to kind of explore a few, a few, quite a few things. I have a whole list of things I want to talk about, but one of the things I want to explore is 
the idea that maybe, maybe if you haven't thought of yourself as a storyteller, do you, does what you do add to stories? Um, yes, I, I think obviously because people come to my shows and they emotionally respond and, um, and honestly, uh, uh, I'm thinking of the shows that I've done recently and I'm thinking of two songs and one of them is called too quick to love, which has uh, a plot. Um, and that's people's favorite song. Um, it's, it's very dramatic. And in the live setting, we even add some pauses and some quick scene changes that aren't on the recording, which really takes the audience along for a ride. So by the end of the song, they feel like they read a little novella. Hmm. And the other song doesn't have a, uh, it's called the Illumination and it's on my forthcoming record. Uh, hasn't been released yet. Um, people enjoy that because musically it tells a story. Uh, there's a lot of improvisation. There's a lot of uh, stretching by the band musically. Everyone gets their features. There's odd bar times. The band gets extremely quiet. Maybe you know the, the you feel like maybe the tempo goes away, and then it comes back in huge. And then there's a this I call it the sun rising at the end of the song, and it ends with this illumination, as in the title of the song. So, uh, but honest to God, those lyrics do not have a plot. That's just telling the world that my wife is really awesome. <laughs> which is a story in and of itself right uh we are we are blessed um by our, our partners and spouses um so so it's interesting because i've thought about this in preparation for some of these conversations with entertainment and especially music i think of like the classics like beethoven bach mozart and maybe there are words maybe there aren't but it's but it's music and it's a story it's those ups and downs the tempo changes the the bravado and then you come back on these things and so when you described illumination just now that's what i thought of was a, a journey through that music so I, mean, I guess that is kind of a story then huh yeah it's a, a, a non-verbal story i'm trying to think of a some sort of analog to that where uh, but maybe music is the only thing that inhabits that space and nonverbal mm -hmm. story. Yeah. Um, now another thing that you do is, uh, is music scoring for film. So we'll get that to that in a minute, but I want to, I want to stay on this idea of, of songs. A couple of my favorite songs um, from your albums are erase me and through any window. Parador is one of my, one of my favorite albums just out there. Like no, no BS. Um, when I listen to it, I go back to that moment that I discovered it and I can feel those feelings so I kind of want to explore either one of those songs or, or one of them, or both of them or whatever. But can you like, especially with through any window, I can, you know, I can picture you describing eyes. Do you remember the story behind that and what that means to you? <laughs> oh, the, um, the cruel irony of, of that is, is no. Um, yeah. The song came to me. It's a cloud. It's a cloud of meaning. When I, when I sing it, I don't think of anything specific except in the middle of the, the bridge. Yeah, but red is the color of, I, I was just trying not to rewrite uh, Donovan's colors, uh, mm. his song Colors. Um, the music really demanded that, that I list off colors and, and name aspects of something. And, and the, 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 the music just sort of told me what words to use. That happens a lot. So 
that didn't come mm. up from a specific place in my life until the bridge when I sing, school bus, take them far from home, take the children far from home, take the children far from home, soon they'll see how sad their lives become. Yeeps. Um, <laughs> God. And, um, uh, to me, that was very real. I was raising young, well, no, we were contemplating young children at the time. And I was wrestling with my wife wanted to have children immediately. And I was questioning whether it was a viable option for us, um, mm. whether I wanted to bring kids into the world. But um, shoot, I, I hope I'm not disappointing you at all. But yeah, so no. Sometimes no, that's, music just insinuates words and yeah. words are collisions. Well, and I can like that, that bridge, that the, the bus thing, I can, I can picture that and I can see that being, you know, just a moment that you want to tell that story and that means something to you. And, you know, when I listen to the song, I, I remember, I think it's blue is the color of our bedroom eyes. I just like, that just, that just hits me. You know, I don't know why, but it just hits me. Like that's really powerful. It's quite a, a descriptor. So, so to me, it feels like, a song can have a meaning to the listener yeah. and a meaning to the songwriter and neither of them are, are wrong. It's where you are in the story, I guess. Right. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And well, and add this layer of mystery on top of it. I was sitting here trying to remember the lyrics in the chorus of that song that I have sung 500 times <laughs> and just pulling them out of air. If, if I'm, if I don't have my fingers on this, yeah. those words are not going to come. Yeah. So it's like just the, the music just brings it and I'm not paying attention. I'm just a vehicle by which this story is delivered to Mr. Moyle. Yeah. And so add that crazy to the whole thing. That's so funny. I, I've never thought of it that way. I'm, I'm not musically inclined. Um, I, I dabbled a short bit. If, uh, if I still had it over my shoulder here, I, I used to have a bass guitar sitting here um, as decoration more than anything. Uh, <laughs> so, so like I, I can't imagine being on stage and, and singing you know a, a dozen and a half songs or whatever it is over the course of 90 minutes and not knowing every word but just being that vehicle so it's a very interesting interesting way to put it so so thank you for that William. wow yeah yeah, yeah. It, i'm yeah i hey I, I i guess i get up and sing sing sets of music where i don't think like i hope i'm memorized i mean i never <laughs> have that thought I do have that thought in relation to like, if I were to have to get up and sing a set of Bob Dylan songs, like how the hell does he do the Jack of hearts, you know, much less, uh, you know, what is it? Tales of Joanna or, you know, like I, and then do it for two or three hours. Um, it's just, you know, I'll just, I'll cover stuck inside a mobile at the, with the Memphis blues again. And I still will always need the, First two words of each verse just printed out in big type on the ground, you know, just to get me started because, mm. man, lining up his shit is just, it's next to impossible to memorize. Epic, in yeah. other words, my music comes from inside of me, yeah. not from outside of me. Yeah. My stories come from inside of me, not outside. That's awesome. Uh, we're going to chase cover songs here in a little bit because I want to talk about your new, when we're recording this, your most recent release, a cover song. And I'm, I'm obsessed with cover songs. So we'll get to that. But um, <clears throat> so one of my things that I love about what you've done over the years, um, you've been a, a composer of two of my, my favorite cult classics, uh, <laughs> Romeo and Julia and Lolly Love. <clears throat> and I think that's where I first got to know you. I um. So it's funny because so hopefully, hopefully the listeners, uh, both of them, enjoy this little sidetrack. I was obsessed with The Office back in the day. 
uh, discovered the British version, then the American version. And so Jenna Fisher, I just thought she played such a great Pam, who was Dawn in the original version. Um, and I just, I just love something about her. The fact that she came from the Midwest, you know, I'm from Michigan, you know, you and she both are from, you know, Minnesota. And I just thought, man, what a, what a cool person. And I just kind of, I loved her work and then realized, or, or, you know, made the connection, whatever with her husband at the time, James Gunn, who then I started chasing down his work. And I just love his vision of everything too. And like, you know, I watched Tromeo and Juliet and then found out who you were through that. And then later when Lolly Love came out, I was like, Oh, I got to watch this. This is Jenna and James both. And you're the composer there. And I've since followed his career. Of course, he's gone on to um, like guardians of the galaxy and stuff, but I love slither. So anyway, needless to say, I really loved how the music is part of, of the story. So with the power of film scores, what's that like for you as a storyteller, as an artist to be part of that world? What is that like to create a film score? Um, my favorite, um, I don't, again, I don't think about it. It's not a conscious act. My, my, uh, one of my favorite film scores ever, I, I haven't done a ton of them, but there was one called The Man Who Invented the Moon, which was also made by the coterie of people surrounding James and Jenna. Um, and um, The Man Who Invented the Moon, and it was a film written by Lee Kirk, and uh, I believe directed by John Cabrera. God, I, I hope I have that right. It's starting to get 12, 14 years ago. So, <laughs> but those guys went on to do my video for, in which Jenna Fisher starred uh, for Through Any Window, the song we were just That's right, watching. that's right. Oh, okay. Jesus, we're all just circles. Um, hey, uh, storytelling is all about circles, ultimately. I, I, mm -hmm. Concentric circles, good storytelling is wraps it all together sure. anyway the um uh my favorite film score was for the man who invented the moon because my it was kind of a toy of a movie it, it was it was an odd length it was like 19 minutes long you know not not a short not a long just in between and uh the characters were were um all, all odd and it was filmed in a very low budget way but in a really artistically convincing way and it was adorable and all the superheroes were in it were somehow wounded and sad and and um and it just made sense to make this soundtrack with my guitar and I was it, it wasn't I don't have piano or keyboard chops worthy of of composing so I was able to just let my fingers, you know, do the walking and tell me what notes should be played. And I'd just sit there and watch it go by and I'd play along and it turned out to be the most natural thing I had done musically, maybe ever. And out of that, actually, if you listen to that film score, three songs on my 2008 Wisely album had those same motifs the motifs from, song, uh, from songs that I would later develop were all born of that improvisational film score. Wow. It would make sense that Harold and Maude was a film that I went and saw, you know, 10 times uh, in my teens and 20s. I was so fascinated with it. And, and Cat Stevens is, to me, was 40% of that film's success. And, and everyone was just so brilliant in it. Um, but uh, the nature of that soundtrack was so 
deeply impacting on me that it just made sense to, I was glad to finally have a movie project where I didn't have to pretend to have a string section or I didn't have to pretend to have an opera singer or it didn't have to rock, you know, it just, I could just be evocative with an acoustic, with a very intimate instrument. And so it, again, that is an internal process, telling that story along with the films, you know, as a film score does, it was an internal process, not visible to my own eyes. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it's funny you bring up Cat Stevens because along, again, concentric circles, uh, one of the Ricky Gervais projects that I loved had T for the Tillerman as the, the soundtrack to it. And I went and found the album and that became one of my favorite albums. But it's connected to, to Ricky too. Like it's just this, like story is connected to everywhere. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And music, to me, is the vehicle by which all that comes. How, how much mu- does music, not like beyond creating it, obviously. Obviously, you're a creator. This is part of you. But how much does music play a part in that part of your, on those parts of your lives as, as a listener? Um, huge. I, I was um, on uh, uh, Facebook just last night. I, I, yesterday, I had posted a uh, Spotify playlist of all my favorite recordings from Apple records that weren't Beatles recordings mm-hmm. or be, be, no Beatles solo stuff. So it was, uh, um, it was a bunch of artists that Apple had signed obscure and not so obscure, bad finger, mo- probably most notably Billy Preston notably, but, and, and uh, James, and, and in my opinion, James Taylor's second best album ever um, but then uh, also some unknown people like Jackie Lomax and Mary Hopkins and, and uh, 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 some, some others. And there, it, I was reminded uh, when I was, li- and this is what you were saying earlier, I believe with Parador, it just put me right back into 30 years ago. Uh, Billy Preston's uh, song is, um, um, that's the way God planned it. Um, and I think he sang it at, at concert for Bangladesh too. There's a great live version there, but the studio recording of that on Apple records is so unbelievable. And I had never heard a recording that was so hopped up. And so, you know, it had that, it, 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 the gospel fervor, uh, but it had all the rock guys playing on it. Like, uh, you know, I think Clapton is doing a lot of hoodling on the end of it. I think George and, George and Eric are like trading licks at the end. It's, it's an air guitarist's dream, the song. And I was posting that on, on Facebook because to, to hear this with headphones on yesterday, I was like, oh, wow, I have not listened to this in 20 years and it is blowing my mind again. And I remember coming home from high school, frustrated with life and love and liberty and, and going up to my bedroom and turning that stereo on so loud and listening to this five, six, seven minute long song with this incredible air guitar jam at the end of it, staring out my window. I see all the colors of my boyhood bedroom and, and man, it just evoked a whole tale of what was going on in my life then. Yeah. Music, man, it is, I mean, I've heard it said that smell is the most powerful, like reminiscent thing since, but I think it's music. I think, man, it gets me there, you know? Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about this, this Apple Records uh, phase or, or obsession, whatever you want to call it for you, Willie. You, your, your newest recording is, you mentioned Jackie Lomax, it's Fall Inside Your Eyes. So it's a cover song. Let's talk about covers. But, but this, this Apple Records thing, I love, I'm going to read from the, the press release because this, man, you're, you're 
your PR person is awesome. Um, talks about produced by none other than George Harrison, commercial flop. Uh, certainly not because half of everybody on the London and Wrecking Crew scenes played on it. McCartney, Starr, Clapton, Billy Preston, uh, Klaus Vormay, you know, all these people. But because the Beatles didn't know squat about how to run a record label or how to promote the music, they were firehosing. <laughs> I just... I just made me laugh, man. I'm like, that's amazing. Um, <clears throat> Cause we, we look at the Beatles as such this high level of amazingness. And yet here you are a little tongue in cheek. Um, so how did you decide to record Jackie's cover when you do so much original stuff and so much great stuff, you were like, okay, I'm going to do this song. Why, why is that? Yeah, that, that was a weird choice. And I wish I had a better answer than I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, I recorded a, like everything I do, and, and it's good to know that Bruce Springsteen works like this too, because otherwise I'd be embarrassed to admit to it, but I'll do something and it'll just sit there for years, maybe even a decade, maybe even two decades until I know what the hell it is and, and what the hell to call it and where it belongs. Um, and so I recorded that song, acoustic guitar and vocal to a click track, uh, and then literally just forgot about it for six, eight years. Um, it popped back up on some sort of search in my hard drive. And I'm like, oh, you know, my, uh, I should throw this to John Fields. He's playing, I, he's got a day off today. And I threw it at him. And, and I said, here, put some Neil Young's Harvest rhythm section on this. And it came back and I'm like, oh my God, this is gold. This is Harvest gold. And, um, and from there, I was like, obviously this needs a pedal steel. So I, I brought my pedal steel player friend over to, to finish the story. And um, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, again, I don't really work in intentional ways. Uh, I, I, the, the best parts of music are the accidental collisions. And that's why I like to take my time with carving my stories, carving my lyrics and carving my chord progressions, because the more you woodshed, the more you play something, the more mistakes happen, the more, you know, the phone rings when you finish the chorus and the tone of the phone is the minor sixth and you realize like, oh, I should not be playing the tonic there. I should be playing the minor six, you know, but in order for that to happen, you have to sit hours in a mesmerized moats, half sleep state to let those ideas come in. Now you can get great ideas by collaborating with others and having that blackboard, that ping pong match. But if, if, and invariably I am just alone because I'm traveling or, or you don't have, I don't have time to make an appointment. If you're going to play ping pong with yourself, sometimes you need the distance of, of time or the other being in the room of fate, you know, and you have to listen to fate, the, in this case, the phone ringing, um, or, or you need time whereby you forget what you created, you come back to it and the path, the, the, is the, the thing you want to collide it with and enrich it with is, is obvious. So it almost sounds like you're collaborating with, with different sides of yourself years later at times. That's, that's pretty cool. Yes. And this Jackie Lomax thing is absolutely a, 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 a result of that because the, the Jackie Lomax album I discovered in high school and it, it's, it's called, is this what you want? And all the people who, all the bad reviews at the time started with definitely not. <laughs> is this what you want? 
Definitely. You know, this is not what we wanted from the Beatles' Apple Records. This was, it was among the first four albums that the, the Apple released. In fact, they had a campaign called The First Four, and this album was not well received. And so when I found it in the dustbins and I was collecting anything with the Apple Records logo on it, and I found it in the early, in probably 81 or something crazy, I, I couldn't believe the level of songwriting and I'm and I'm hearing all the, the familiar tones from the studios where the Beatles are recording and 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 all the all the players that they're working with and it, it had this familiarity to it and, and I thought this is genius and nobody cares about this it, it, the, the early 80s were I feel like a little bit of a low point for the Beatles they weren't uh, their stuff hadn't been remastered in a while. I don't think they probably knew how to do the CD era correctly. The, the, U, the, the U.S. albums had just been sort of retired for the British albums. So people in the U.S. were like, what is, what album is this? This isn't Revolver, you know? And, and, and they just, you know, they probably weren't getting licensed in television because they were shutting that stuff down um, uh, and not allowing it. But yet that was becoming the dominant way that people would discover, a, you know, a new audience. And, and anyway, when I find Jackie Lomax, to get to my point, I'm like, no one seems to know about this record. Not, not the record store clerk, not me. And, I, and it makes no sense that there's three of them for sale in the used record bin. So I took it home and I showed my bandmates and we were just like, we are the, the only surviving Jackie Lomax freaks in the world. And, and I, as, as I explain, and I think I... Oh, I may not have released it yet. I did a little explainer of my, my music video for the song, I Got Fall Inside Your Eyes. Um, and uh, in it, I, I say that we, we, were, we were convinced that we were the only people in the world who knew him. And his obscurity was so deep that when we played his tracks live at our shows, we just said we wrote him. We <laughs> <laughs> didn't credit him. Right. And I was actually able to tell him that. I saw him at a show in 2005, probably his last tour, honestly. And I took him aside and I said, you were so influential on me. Your songwriting is so profound. And we were certain that we alone understood the vision of the, the Beatles collaborative record label. And, and, and you were the vessel by which we felt intimate with that. And, and, and by the way, we told everyone we wrote your songs. <laughs> and, uh, and in the news release, it kind of describes that. But uh, I want to hear you. How was, how was his reaction to your exuberance? You know, it's fascinating he, to me. Well, he honestly seemed a little confused by the the, the situation. Yeah. Um, we're naturally all a bit stressed when we're playing shows, particularly with pickup bands and not really on tour. He was more of a, I think he was just brought out as sort of a special guest. And, you know, so he was a little rusty and he had to kick that out. And the guys in the band were doing awesome. Um, but there's just a lot of looking around and not knowing when, things are going to end and you know, a lot of unknowns and he got off stage. And so that, that combined with uh, his advancing age um, as well as um, what was it? What was the other thing I was going to bring up? Sorry, a brain fart. Um, yeah, is it, oh, uh, he, he just seemed sort of uh, out of it. Oh, oh, and his British like kind of repose because I'm being super fanboy, I'm being super American fanboy, <laughs> verging on Japanese girl fanboy, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's just a little too much for the reserved Brit. You know, they, they, I, I noticed that. I, I toured Lund uh, England in um, 
in, in the mid nineties. And I noticed that my enthusiasm to make friends was often met with a little bit of like, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I, I, I think the British don't find enthusiasm to be terribly genuine. Mm. So interesting. Funny. Interesting. Um, and you, and I mean, you've toured quite a bit, so that has to like, I just, I just think it's interesting to see, see the world, you know? So yeah. Yeah, um, the, the, the the Japanese tours were particularly, uh, there were three of them. And, and yeah. Particularly. I mean, I could go back and do it again. I just, uh, family and, and, uh, kids and, and, uh, day, day jobs that I absolutely am in love with doing. I yeah, can't tour like I used to. Yeah. So let's talk about your day job. Uh, it's with Concord music. Is that right? Yes. Now just, now just Concord. Yeah. Because, uh, so what does that mean to be in acquisitions for Concord music? Um, oh, I didn't know you knew that. Um, the, uh, it means that I evaluate catalogs of recorded music and catalogs of music publishing uh, for our for purchase. Um, I evaluate what they are worth on the market, and then I reevaluate them for what they would be worth to our company given our particular skills to exploit, forgive the word, uh, to exploit those copyrights. So, you know, Concord has, as a company, as a record label, as a music publisher, has certain talents, certain talent sets and certain strengths. And, um, you know, we, and, and we also have other assets that might be complementary to, to things that we're purchasing. So I have to have a knowledge of what we already control, what we're good at, um, you know, should we buy a catalog in this music genre from this part of the world when we have no experience uh, collecting those royalties previously? Um, or when we have a lot of experience collecting those royalties um, uh, uh, previously? So all of that weighs into it. I spend my day doing valuations and talking to sellers of historic music catalogs. It's a fascinating job. And I feel lucky in as much as that there aren't a lot of people doing this on planet earth. Yeah. No, it sounds incredibly fascinating. You, you know, you, you think about the, the, the music that I, that I, at least I think about the music that I listen to and the fact that there's been music made for, uh, you know, forever and different ways to record it and license and ice things. And there's such a business behind it. And I don't think that we said, you know, apologies for using the word exploit, it, but, but I get it. It's not an exploit in a bad way there's a business to it and, and there has to be, and that's okay. Um, what do you think is like, have you come across music where you're just like, man, this blew me away, whether it was valued or not that you just like, I guess my question is, is this a way for you to discover new music for yourself? Uh -huh. Oh, it definitely is. Cause I have to go in and educate myself as to, um, you know, the, the one of we, we bought a record label, uh, that, that was uh, began in Mexico, I believe, in the 1940s, <laughs> and um, it it houses the catalogs of some of the most popular music in the world, some of the most highly streamed music in the world, um, and I guarantee you that as as you know, Yankees up <laughs> up here, we've 
probably never heard the names of these people and you, but you wouldn't believe their popularity. And so I have to go do a deep dive into that and, and figure out what it is I'm buying, what it is that makes it valuable. What's the allure of this, uh, as opposed to, you know, other artists in a similar genre, you know, and you'll quickly find out that Mexican music is not a single genre and, 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 and that all these artists have, have very distinct personalities and giant catalogs made of tens of thousands of recordings. And mm. yeah, so it just forces you to get out there and listen and understand music, be a musicologist in, in a sociological context, really. And you also have to, you know, it, you have to figure out is streaming going to grow or is it going to shrink or downloads going to grow or shrink in regards to this catalog. Uh, are physical sales of vinyl and CDs going to grow or shrink? And to understand that, you have to understand sociologically how the fans of this music interact with it. You know, is, is this a direct-to-consumer artist? Um, or is this an untouchable superstar who just is going to get streamed over and over because their song is sung at every, birth, every Mexican birthday party ever thrown? You know, so it, it's, it's just fascinating. I'm just giving you little anecdotal tidbits but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's every day it's a music class yeah well and it's it's incredible to think like you know i've clearly midwesterner middle america total yankee as you said you, you kind of just automatically think for better or for worse like mexican music must be all cucaracha band like as terrible as that sounds but in reality man there's such culture and such beauty and what they what they make in all different parts of the world so like it just has to be incredible that's that's awesome really. that sounds so cool yeah without a doubt even just the way that they sing and this gets back to storytelling too um a a popular singing technique in throughout mexican music is very wide i can't, I can't even do it wide vibrato you know and and it's it's it verges on like Oh my God, then the, the note is so busy being sharp and flat that it's never in tune. And it has this cacophony that actually I'm realizing now, instead of it just sounding cacophonous to these, uh, to these uh, Eastern European ears of mine, the, the, uh, what it really is, is, is it's this sort of disconcerting thing that creates a lot of emotion. And it's funny, the, a lot of Mexican music is in 6-8 time and has that incredible v v dramatic vibrato. And if you listen to enough of it, you get like emotional, you, you get tingly and it's a technique, it's a real thing. And they've tapped into it much harder than Western, Europe, than, than, uh, Western and European musics. Uh, and it's just fascinating. So they're, they're telling these, uh, these culturally gigantic stories with just simple vocalization techniques. It's really neat. So it's basically like, I mean, American music sounds kind of boring at this point then. <laughs> it just sounds like it's 4-4, four, four, it's blues-based, we're good, it scales. This just sounds so incredible. So, so really the lesson here to me is whether, whatever kind of storytelling you're looking at, music or anything, like broaden your horizons, right? Yeah, um, that gets back to, you know, my feeling that collisions have to be yeah, collisions have to be made and that uh, the, uh, the greatest superstars of all time were the ones who were combining their personality with the personalities of, of cultures that surrounded them. Yeah. You know, and more often than not, like, look at The Who. Um, the Who are such a 
dynamic image in the in the in that in the imagination of rock and roll lovers. There's their maximum rock and roll. That they're they're you know the Who and the Kinks and the Beatles sort of have this ultimately ultimate British identity. You know they they seem to define what that country, what the empire means to the world somehow. And, you know, even to the point of where like the who just co-opted the, the, the union Jack, you right. know, and, and I, I, I think about that and I've lost my train of thought, honestly, but you know, what were we talking about? The, the, the collisions that happen. The, yeah. Just yeah. The, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm saying. Dude, <laughs> the, the music is as vivid and real as, you know, as nation states. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Um, so the other thing I, that I did, I found when I was researching you a little bit for our conversation, um, you manage the estates of Billie Holiday and Tammy Wynette. Is that still true? That is actually, uh, I gave up that job uh, about three months ago, but okay. I did manage those estates uh, with a team of people for uh, about six, six, seven years. Wow. And it was quite an honor and, and truly fascinating entrepreneurial work. So what is, what is that like? I mean, I think of Tammy Wynette, I think of Billie Holiday, again, like in, in a frame of storytellers, amazing storytellers, singers. I mean, country music alone is all about story, right? The joke is you play a country music song backwards, get your dog back, your truck back, and you're remarried, right? <laughs> but it's all about story. And those are legendary storytellers. What is it like to have that? Or what does it mean to have that I manage those estates? What, is, what does that mean even? Yeah, you have to, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions that go along with that, particularly in the case of Billie Holiday, where the dominant image of her was of a suffering heroin addict and the, the, her story as um, the reinvention of modern singing, as the reinventor, as the reinventress of modern singing gets completely buried under all the bullshit, mm. you know, and and it was such a shame that the government victimized her. Um, the, the FBI in particular targeted her. Um, the, the, uh, her, her manager was forced to, uh, who managed uh, Louis Armstrong was forced to give up one of his clients to do a drug bust. He had to choose Billy because Louis was his bigger client, you know, and, and mm. just, and then all the things that go along with being black and female in 1930s, 40s, 50s America, and um, you lose the fact that um, if you're enjoying um, Amy Winehouse, you'd better be acknowledging and enjoying Billie Holiday because mm -hmm. without one, without Billie, there, there is no other. And um, so you manage in a state with that sort of reverence. You have to be careful because you're a white male. Um, de facto acting as the persona of of a female from this time and uh of her race so you have to be very gentle about issues particularly when you're the you're her voice at in at twitter you know i'm not literally talking in in uh in in the in the person of billy holiday i'm not talking i'm not tweeting in the first person sure but we have to be very careful about the subjects we address and any anachronisms that you know might exist that would make that kind of a not naughty you know or you know anything that would would be in modern days seen as uh, uh 
I'm, I'm at a loss for words. Um, inappropriate, you know. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things happened in the 1930s that aren't appropriate anymore. <laughs> sure, okay. sure. So, but um, you know, what you know, big thing with her is is she um, she was uh, intrinsic in in the development of the song "Strange Fruit." Um, she didn't write it, but she was there when it was. She was important in its in how it was put together. Mm. Um, and uh, that's a long story, but. You know, and, and that's considered the first protest song uh, ever written, and it, it which can't possibly be true. But in, in the modern day, it, it, it is definitely a protest song, and it was protesting lynching. And it was very bold for its day, and that was why uh, a decade, two decades later, she was still being targeted for drug busts, because the heads of the FBI didn't like the fact that she was speaking out on issues that uh, that... African Americans were not supposed to be talking about. So, I mean, protests, that's, that's, that's a whole different like rabbit to chase protest songs. I mean, I, I, I've heard, and I've probably said it over the years. Why do I care what you think? You're just a musician. You're just an actor. You're just a whatever. But in truly like art is the mirror by which we measure our culture, I think. And protest songs are a big part of that. I mean, that's just like, that's just, a, that's just, a, that's a thing. And so it's incredible. I, I would imagine it has to be incredible to, to be connected to that history of, of our music and our, in our country and our culture. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. My favorite moment came um, during uh, the year of her centennial in tw- April of 2015. And uh, we were, we were in charge of, of, of assisting and, and staging, you know, uh, uh, a lot of uh, initiatives around her hundredth birthday, mm. and my favorite, we we helped line up a CBS Morning News piece on Billie Holiday, and the producers of that show called me uh, with what Scott Pelley, I think, is the, uh, okay, yeah. the broadcaster who, and um, uh, his producers called us and said, "What should we do?" and I, I'll just take credit for the idea. I had long been tracking like who is still alive that played with Billie Holiday. And at the time I knew of uh, five individuals, um, two of, uh, three of whom I knew where they were. And one of them was Quincy Jones, but I think he just, uh, it sounds like he didn't really play a gig with her. He just showed up to a jam session and might've been adjacent to well, whatever was going on. But I knew that the jazz guitarist, Kenny Burrell, had done some significant concerts, her, her Carnegie Hall, her second big Carnegie Hall show and um, headline. And he had also uh, played on her 1956 album, uh, Lady Sings the Blues and other important sessions. And I knew Kenny Burrell was just an emeritus professor at UCLA, just a few miles away. So we had the producer or I got in touch with Kenny or something. We hooked that all up and I was able to go to the interview with Kenny Burrell, who was in his mid eighties, I believe. And um, we went over to UCLA and the, the reporters were there and, and, and the producers and, and I got to meet Kenny who I had actually gone and seen him a huge jazz freak. And uh, my wife had 
and I had gone seen him play at a small club in LA just a couple of years before. And so it was just great to be in the same room with him. He was on, you know, he worked with John Coltrane. He did duet albums with John Coltrane, you know, just top line guitar, jazz guitarist. Mm. And, um, it was neat to meet him and I'll be damned. He gave the best interview An 85 year old man had his wits. He was recanting story, retelling stories about not recanting, retelling stories about, um, uh, talking to Billy about her drug addiction and about how she should go to Europe and get free treatment. They don't criminalize it like they do in America. They, they considered a, a victim, you know, a, 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 a you know, uh, they consider drug addicts as victims. Mm -hmm. And he was weeping as he was telling this story. Mm -hmm. And to think that I had anything to do with coaxing that story out into the mass media on a Sunday morning on a major network was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And I was sad to hear Kenny Burrell right now has a, um, uh, a GoFundMe campaign because of all things, when he turned 85, they had a huge 85th anniversary show for him at Royce Hall at UCLA. And apparently on his way to or from stage, he fell and he never recovered. It led to financial disaster. Then they had their identity, he and his wife had their identity stolen and uh, they're about ready to be homeless. Wow. This is an emeritus professor about to be homeless. You can, this is like three week, this is news from three weeks ago. His GoFundMe campaign, uh, what said at $100,000, is now coming in uh, um, at nearing three hundred grand. I think. Oh, good. So people are wow. coming to, to show support for Kenny. Um, but I feel, yeah, please, GoFundMe. Kenny Burrell, two R's, two L's. Amazing player, one of the last living people to play with Billie Holiday. Um, and the other one is Corky Hale, and she's still alive and well in, in, uh, in Los Angeles as well. She's actually married to Mike Lieber. Lieber and Stoller. Okay. Yeah. So Man. Mike Lieber, Jerry Stoller. Yeah, I, I, I think so. <laughs> Don't like it. So many connections. It's incredible to think about how, how much music touches everything. Mm -hmm. It really is. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, luckily, <laughs> luckily only a fraction of us are good at playing music. <laughs> <laughs> That makes it that, you know, you're likely to get a call back and, and you know, a good gig is likely to, to string along and draw people. And, and, yeah. uh, and it's, it's actually a smaller world than one might think. And I think that's what people enjoy about it, too, is the connections. You know, that old show Connections from, from uh, the BBC in the 70s. Mm. Such a great show. That was the first time as a kid watching that where they just have some mad scientists connecting the sculptures in Bali with, you know, the... the the, this, you know, I, I don't, you know, the, crazy. you know, the burning of trash in, you know, urban London, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the connections. And so people love the drama. They love the, the story, you know, of, of how can I connect this? How can I hear what's actually, you know, connecting this to everything else in the world as I understand it? Absolutely. And, and as a, you know, there's only a, a small portion of, of you who are gifted to do this. Um, are, you, are you all fans too then? Like quite often, maybe not everybody, but I mean, I got to believe, like I, I've thought about this before at, at, a, at a concert, you see the opening band, uh, the opening act, and then the main act comes out and I'm picturing the opening act then in the crowd and the mosh pitter and the whatever, just enjoying the music or, you know, or, or the, the main act when the openers out there, they're maybe watching it 
maybe not every night, but because you're just fans. Does that happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. I, I remember, you know, opening up for Dr. John. I remember opening up for the Violent Femmes. I remember opening up for Trip Shakespeare. I remember opening up for um, Buddy Guy. Wait, oh, no, no, not, not Buddy Guy. Um, uh, uh, drawing a blank. Harmonica player who always played with Buddy Guy. Oh, I don't know my jazz or shame on or... me. Shame on me. Um, I'll th- I'll think of it in a moment. But yeah, uh, yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> I remember it so well. I can't remember. <laughs> Junior, Junior Wells. Yeah, uh-huh. blues harmonic lick. Junior Wells. So just the most amazing. And he was like, I, I was just so at his feet after that gig. And he's like, you know, get up off the floor, young Skiggly. You know, I, I don't think he misheard my name. You know, it's Wiggly Skiggly. <laughs> and, and he's like come back and have some barbecue with us and i went back into and he's um, an entourage with his entire family you know chicago blues and they are back there with a folding table that had that was a foot high in barbecued ribs and oh. his whole family's back there and we were just you know <laughs> uh so gracious but That's um awesome. no i uh, yeah i'm i'm a I'm, I'm a huge fan i think in order to make music if you're not a huge fan if you're not a fanboy or a fangirl yourself, like I don't know where the inspiration's going to come from. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you know, I, I've already told you what inspired me to just play air guitar in my high school bedroom. I, mm-hmm. you know, without that, there's no, there's no songs because without the air guitar, without without music touching me and making me believe and feel something, there's no compunction to write, to, to get on stage and make it. And with me, you can take that a step further. It's like, well, if I'm going to, cause I only knew the Beatles cause I'm a maniac. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't listen to anything else. It's like, Oh, I just have to do what the Beatles. I, I'm, I, I'm so in love with them. I just want to be them. And if I want to be them, I have to do what they do. And I guess that means I have to start writing songs. Okay, I'll start writing songs. <laughs> you know, and it, so you just will this into being. It's not ever a question of whether you can do it or not. You're just, you're just modeling because you're 15 years old and that's all you know how to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. I, can, I can picture it. When I was in high school, I became obsessed with The Doors and Jim Morrison. And I wanted to be the next American poet. And so I, you know, I made the same necklace that was on the Doors Greatest Hits album. I, you know, I, I would try to grow my hair like Jim. I tried to write poetry and I realized that I'm not Jim Morrison, <laughs> but I've been able to be creative in my own way. So no, I get it. Dude, I actually went to the Renaissance Festival in the early nineties in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and went to one of the artisans there and, and showed him, a, 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 did I bring my vinyl? of Zeppelin one. And I'm like, I want Robert Plant's necklace. Can you remake me Robert Plant's necklace? Yes. <laughs> it oh, seemed like a Renaissance fair kind of, you know. Sure. Oh, that's awesome. Good. I'm glad to know it's not just me then. That's good. <laughs> so, uh, well, this has been absolutely incredible. It's been so much fun. I feel like we're just sitting around having a beer and, and talking. Um, oh, I, I want to get to my last question in a minute, but I want to give you the opportunity before anybody uh, stops listening to, to pop where it's best to connect with you into the conversation. And I'll, and I'll put links in the show notes, but where's the best way to connect with Willie Wisely? Willie Wisely music. Facebook is the place where I guess I prefer communicating. And um, yeah, please, please go there. WillieWisely.com is my website, but uh, I'm, I'm most active at, at Facebook at Willie Wisely music. 
you can also friend me personally at Willie Wisely. So uh, right on. And I can attest the man, the man says yes to even people like me. So thank you for that. So (laughs) without, you know, without people who obviously who, who, who go forth in this world proselytizing music, I just, there's no point in doing it. So I just really, your efforts are so deeply appreciated and, and your podcast is so smart and just so well wrought. I, I, you know, you're doing great. Thank you very much. So if someone ever, maybe I've convinced you that you are a storyteller now, but if someone were to say to you tomorrow, Willie wisely, you're all done being a storyteller. What would be your last story that you'd want to, to go out on, so to speak? (laughs) I always, um, it's just my vanity, but I, you know, in my imagination, I'm always the, 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 the sexcapades of being on tour (laughs) are always the ones, you know, you can't tell them, but they're, so, oh God, if I could only tell that story. You know, I, I saw a picture of uh, Ringo Starr and Stephen Stills uh, today. They were at the uh, premiere a few nights ago for Echoes in the Canyon, the film about Laurel Canyon, where I lived for 15 years, uh, and the music that went on there. And, you know, the Beatles visited Laurel Canyon, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash were like the kings of Laurel Canyon, of, uh, among with everybody else who was there including Jimmy and Neil and Frank Zappa and and it just the monkeys the monkeys are still there three dog night though that dude's still there like it, it's it, it's banana you know Jackson Brown anyway uh, and of course the biggest Joni Mitchell probably but um she still owns homes there um, wow. I drove by it every day for 15 years like, oh, wow. you're just like Joni you know like it's so stupid but like you say, we re- we reach out for narratives in our life, and that's one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, the the uh, yeah, I saw that picture of Ringo and Steven Stills together, and Ringo was like, well, "These guys turned us on to acid," <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I'm like, those guys have so many stories they can't even tell. You know, I mean, Ringo, he's got a very mixed audience with, uh, in terms of age and gender and culture. I mean, think of all the people that love the Beatles. He can't just go out and tell tawdry stories. Oh, <laughs> neither can I, but in my, in my imagination, I could blow you all away with just like, you did that? That happened? That's what right. amount of, I mean, that's like beyond alcohol. You know, like, like what drove young human beings to do that? And, uh, you know, like I, I once, you know, robbed a, <laughs> I thought I was justified in robbing a secondhand store. That's always a good one. Uh, I call that one, uh, what'd you do to mama? You know, um, <laughs> because her son was chasing me down the street with a tree branch. Um. It, it's just like, and, and, and we had a getaway car, the whole deal. I mean, but the, the, the horrors we visited upon people. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not answering your question with a, no, a distinct that's, story. That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I guess stories are sexy beasts and maybe one time I can write a, a sexy book. Um, and I, I know many have become, uh, many before me have, have come, uh, including Henry Rollins and, mm. uh, and, and his like too. So. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Willie, so much for telling your stories and for being a part of the Storytellers Network, my friend. Oh, wow. It's, uh, it's my deepest pleasure, Dan. Appreciate it. 
Once again, thank you so much, Willie Wisely, for joining me on the Storytellers Network. Please go visit the links in the show notes. Check out his newest album and his past catalog as well. But connect with Willie. He really is a genuinely amazing guy, has great content uh, out there in the world, just music and thoughts and everything. Just a good guy. Uh, So connect with those links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, this conversation, please consider sharing it on social media or texting someone or telling someone about the show. listeners like you telling people about the storytellers network is where it's at. So I appreciate that very much. And if you want to share your story with me, go to the storytellers network.com, go to the contact page and hit contact Dan and let's have us a conversation. Thank you for listening until next time. Here's to telling our stories and having those stories to tell. Cheers.